The rest of us can go to Acts chapter 4. It's been a few weeks um, since we've been in the book of Acts. Uh, we had uh, Easter and we had the Teen Challenge guys come through. Um, we uh, we skipped the, the we moved away from Acts for Easter, which is probably a good thing because Ananias and Sapphira was was the topic and David was willing to, to try to turn that into a gospel message, which he would have, I know, but we, we thought it'd be better to maybe not do that then. So um, one of the guys that I, I, a commentator that I've been reading a lot for the book of Acts is a guy named Tony Merida, and, and I like to give credit where credit's due, so I, I used a lot of his material. One of the things that he points out here in the, in the book of Acts is that usually what we're seeing is, is the church scattered. We're watching the church go out on mission, and, and it's kind of explaining that to us. But what we get to see this morning is every once in a while the lens kind of tightens down into the church, into the gathered church, and we see what goes on inside the walls, so to speak, of the, of the church. And that's what we get to look at this morning. If you've ever been part of a church, you know that there is a beautiful side to the church. And you also know that there can sometimes be an ugly side to the church, including this one. There are times where we just see beautiful things and there are times when we see difficult things and those exist. And, and this morning we're going to actually see both of those things. This section is also another example of how the chapter breaks aren't always helpful. Um, they were added later and in this instance, um, what we read at the end of chapter four is meant to be contrasted with what we read at the beginning of chapter five. So we're going to we're going to move right into there. Chapter four gives us an example of Barnabas and, and then chapter five gives us the counterexample of Ananias and Sapphira. And as if you didn't already know this, the Bible contains difficult things. And this is one of those, these mornings where this is going to apply. But God wants his church to learn from the passages like this, to be purified from passages like this. And so this morning we're going we're gonna to dive in and, and see what we can, we can glean from it. So we're going to start out in chapter 4, verse 32. Um, this you know, should be reminiscent of what we read in, back in Acts chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2, when it described the church. It'll seem very similar. Verse 32 starts out and says this, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace, remember that word, that phrase, great grace, was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called uh, by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite and a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. All right, and then chapter 5 starts out with the word but. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with the wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and only brought part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of that land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. He died. In case you didn't get that, that's dead. That's a nice way of saying what we don't want to say otherwise, I guess. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. 
After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear, remember that phrase, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So we're going to look at chapter four first and and pull some observations out of that. It, It starts out by telling us that the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Luke qualifies some things in this statement. First, he tells us the percentage of those who were doing this, the full number. I'm kind of bad at math, but I've got a 55, 55 chance of getting this right because that's bad. 100%. That's what the full number means. All of them. 100%, right? Or 110% if you're an overachiever. This is significant because the church, if you remember, had grown substantially at this point. There was a lot of people, thousands at this point, And it says they were all of one heart and soul. That's a remarkable thing to consider. How is something like that possible? Well, the answer is is given in the next thing that Luke says about them. He doesn't just say the full number. He says the full number of those who believed. And that's important. Because not everyone who comes to church is a believer. Some people just come to church. We've seen, you know, over the years, people pop in, pop out. That works. But those who believed, it said, were all of one heart and soul. Well, the next question would be believed what? And we know that the answer is the gospel. They had fully submitted themselves to the belief that Jesus is Lord, that he died, was buried, and rose again. And when we identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and trust in that work to save us from our sins, things change, right? We become alive. God fills us with his Holy Spirit. He takes our heart of flesh or heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh, and things become different. And so what that means is that a selfish guy like me can all of a sudden start to care about the needs of other people, start to put other people's needs before my own. That's not my my, my normal bent. I'm, I'm selfish to the core, and, and I know that in Christ, those things begin to change. John told us in um, chapter 13 of his, of his gospel that Jesus said these words, that people would know that you're my followers. They'll know that you're my real deal followers if you love one another, by the way that you love one another. They'll see how you love, and they'll be like, that. that's different than what I see other places. Something different is going on here. And that's exactly what you see going on here in the early church. Um, there's really no other explanation for it apart from Christ. If you're bound together in Christ, there's this love and this unity that defies logic. Have, have you noticed that? You can, you can go to a, another church somewhere that you don't even know any of the people. You can walk in, you can sit down, and it's like you're immediately among family. And I want you to think about that. Imagine trying to do this in the world. Imagine trying to gather a 1,000 people just randomly through the community. Think about where people come from to come to this church. You know, you go into Bend, grab some people, go down to Lapine, grab some people, go to that terrible neighborhood, OWW1. That's where I live. I'm just kidding. It's, it's not really a rough place. But bring all of these, you know, just grab a thousand people, put them like go over to the gymnasium at the school, put them in that gymnasium and say, OK, you're, you guys are going to start doing life together now. Have one heart and one soul. What do you think would happen? <laughs> Probably not that. 
In fact, what you would see happen is people would begin to divide out into the natural categories that we divide out into into the world. So you'd have, you know, people divide out by race, by background, by culture, by socioeconomic kind of things, money. So you'd have the rich and the poor, the, the smart and the maybe not so smart. Maybe that's not a real one. You know, Apple and Android, beavers and ducks, you, you know, all those kinds of things that actually, because those are the things that define people. Those are what define us. And so you would find people categorized into those little definitions. What you probably wouldn't see is what we see in the early church, this amazing love and unity and generosity flowing between them. But these followers of Christ, who in most cases barely knew each other, became of one heart and one soul because Jesus defines who they are. Jesus was the very, the most important thing to all of them. They had that in common more than anything else. Sure, the other differences still existed. Of course they do. But they're insignificant compared to this, this, this one who defines us, Christ. They even shared what matters most with each other because it says they shared their finances and their material possessions. And you know when wallets start opening up, it's getting serious now, right? When you start handing out money to each other and sharing your stuff, that's, that's like, okay, this is real here. A verse that hit me hard as a new Christian and has stuck with me all these years is 1 Corinthians 6.19. It says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Hear that again. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. That means everything I have now belongs to the one who ransomed me, including my very life. That means all my talents aren't my own. All my time's not my own. All my treasures are not my own. They belong to him. They're on loan to me for now. That changes everything. It allows you to kind of take, take, you know, loosen the, the death grip on these things and kind of let them go. When, when God's grace floods into a sinner's life, it should naturally result in this kind of generosity. Not just monetary, but also a general attitude of selflessness, of putting others before yourself. And that's what we see taking place in the early church. Radical generosity and cheerful giving because they had all experienced great grace through Christ. And, and when that happens, then it starts spilling over into the lives of other people. That's evidence that the gospel has taken root in someone's life. And one of the amazing things we've seen in this church since we started is, is this has happened. We, we've watched this go on. Um, ever since we've started this church, we've seen believers give without ever having to be told. We, we don't actually, we don't pass the plate. You might not have noticed that, but you're welcome. Uh, some people like that. I don't know. We don't pass the plate. We put boxes out there. We don't say a whole lot about it. We don't preach a lot of sermons on giving. And, and guess what happens? God provides through his people, generously giving and taking care of each other. You know, this is one of these sermons, by the way. Statistically, if you preach on giving regularly, guess what happens? Giving goes up. No, actually, giving goes up. You can't. It works. You can preach on giving. Look at, I mean, look at mega churches. Look at, I don't, I shouldn't even go there, but look at some, I shouldn't say mega churches, but some of these, some of these churches that really focus on money, money comes in. So statistically, you can, you can do that. It'll work. In fact, this sermon, this, this passage could be completely used as a give or else sermon. Do you see how you could do that pretty easily? I mean, it's right there, right? You, you know, you don't have to give, but, you know, if you want to stand upright, I mean, you could do that with this passage. Look at God bless Barnabas. Be like Barnabas. Don't be like Ananias and Sapphira. I mean, you see where you could go with that? I'm not going to go there. <laughs> 
A lot of money can be coerced out of people by means of guilt and fear. It's a tactic that, that people use. And then fortunately, churches use sometimes. We're not interested in guilt, guilting anybody out of money. We're not, we're not interested in trying to put your arm behind your back and, 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 you know, get into your wallet or your purse. God doesn't need your money to accomplish his purposes. You know that? It's not like God's short on cash. He's like, man, we have this church over there. What am I going to, you know, I got to raise some money, you know, maybe we can get a thermometer in heaven. And, you know, no, he doesn't need to do that. He's not, he doesn't have those kinds of needs. It's amazing though, to participate in this, to, to, to participate in this kind of generosity with other people, to give because you want to, because you can. We would much rather see your giving be an act of worship than an act of duty. And, and I, you know, as I just reflect on what we've seen happen in this church, just through the sharing times, I mean, we see like what we see today where people generously come alongside each other and embrace people. But we've seen crazy stuff happen in this church in regards to generosity. Sometimes somebody will, in the, in the prayer time, the sharing time, will say, you know what, I don't have a car. I can't get to work. And by the end of church that day, guess what they have? A car. Somebody comes up and says, hey, here's a car. It's like, what? Or I don't have a job. I don't have a place to live. Whatever it is, we've seen over and over again God's people generously step up to and, and do this. So what we see in the in this you know this chapter four of Acts, we have actually witnessed that crazy stuff. People just giving motorhomes to people, and it, I mean it's just nuts. You know, if you don't have a place to live, we'll take you in. I love that. The love of Christ compels us to love each other. And often that's manifested through the way we give. Well, verse 33 gives us further insight into the early church when it says this, and great and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. And again, Tony Merida points out here, the apostles are declaring the gospel and preaching and the church is declaring the gospel in generosity. I really like the picture of that because it's like having the chocolate and the peanut butter. I just ate a lot of those Easter Reese's eggs, so that's in my mind right now. But but when you have both of these things going on, you're preaching the gospel and you're, there's radical generosity is going on within the church and outside of the church. It's the perfect storm for evangelism. What a powerful and effective combination. If you remove one of those, obviously, if you remove the preaching of the gospel, nobody's getting saved, right? People do that. And there's churches out there right now that are nothing more than social kind of community gatherings. They meet lots of needs. They love people in the community, but there's no gospel being preached. Nobody's getting saved at that point. And the other thing we do sometimes is we only preach the gospel, which will save people. It's a message that will save. But but when there's no love or, or you know, you don't see the love of Christ in it, 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 it kind of, it's not the same. It's not as, it's not as rich and, and, and um, as effective, I don't think, when, when you don't have those two together. So this is a lethal combination. And I see that in this church. We preach the gospel Every week, we always try to tell people, whoever we can, and then we see this radical generosity going on. So I, I, I think that's helped us in this community. Generally speaking, we have a pretty good reputation in the community, and we need to guard that. We need to maintain that. We need to continue it because it will result, hopefully, in souls being saved, which is what we want to see. Well, verse 34 tells us there wasn't a needy person among them. They were selling lands and houses and all these things. They were laying up at the apostles' feet to be distributed. And then it singles out one guy named Joseph, whose nickname is Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Barnabas sold a field and brought it and gave it to them. Barnabas is just introduced to us now. You'll, you'll see his name throughout the book of Acts. We're going to learn a lot more about Barnabas. Um, he kind of is the 
I guess, the poster child for generosity in the church at this particular time. A lot of people were doing this, but Barnabas was the guy that they kind of single out as like the example right here. And I love this nickname. I mean, you know, I've had some nicknames in my life. Probably nothing I'd want to share with you guys here today. Um, some of them haven't been very good or very nice. But this is a pretty cool nickname to have. Can you imagine that when somebody sees you coming? Hey, here comes the son of encouragement. That'd be kind of neat. I, and I couldn't help but think, what, what, what do people say when they see you coming or when you leave? You know, are they saying, ah, that was great to be around those guys? You know, that's what you want, right? What kind of nickname would you like to have in the church? This guy was, was one of these Christians, and I, I love being around people like this, that when you get around them, you, you walk away feeling like you're kind of walking on air almost. Like they just built you up and exalted Christ and encouraged you and pushed you towards the Savior. Be that for each other in the church. You know, earn, earn a nickname like that. That's a pretty cool thing to have. Now, some of us look at this passage, or some, I shouldn't say some of us, some have looked at this passage, and they see kind of a recipe for socialism. And I'm not going to go too far down this road, because I realize that could be, you know, dangerous this morning. But I, I do want to say, I don't believe that's what's going on there. The big difference between what we're witnessing here in the early church and what socialism, you know, that whole idea of that is, this is all voluntary, completely voluntary. Nobody's coming in and saying, you know, I mean, can you imagine that if we were to, you know, stand over you guys and like, well, let's see what you got in your wallet. Well, you have three twenty dollar bills and they don't have any. So, you know, you t- that that's very different than than what we see happening here. Voluntary. And it's important to point that out because some people try to take what happened to Ananias and Sapphira and say, well, this is why God judged them. It's because they weren't participating in, in, in this kind of this kind of thing. And that's not what's going on here. So in chapter five, as we jump into there. We'll, we'll see this contrast. And I, I love this because if you think about the way we, you know, our world today, um, we do everything we can to try to avoid bad press, right? Nobody wants a, like something negative to come out in the headlines. And in a world full of cover-ups and spin doctors, to have this account written down and recorded in God's Word for everybody to read and see tells us something. It's significant, right? This isn't the kind of story you want leaked to the press. It's not what you want to see plastered on the, on the front page you know, of the Jerusalem times, right? What happens to Ananias and Sapphira? You want what happened in chapter four to show up there, right? Barnabas sells a piece of land, gives it, you know, money given to, and that's the kind of thing you want, not this other thing. And yet, here it is. Run, Luke runs the story. Uh, Eugene Peterson joked about this idea that, you know, it would be like if we were to put up signs out in front of the church that said, beware of God. You know, you wouldn't do that probably. It probably wouldn't attract a big crowd. This isn't the story you lead with. And here it is in the Bible, which to me is further proof that none of this is man-made. The Bible reveals God in the exact light that He wants to be revealed in, and it reveals the story of God exactly the way He wants it to be told. Luke tells us about a man named Ananias who, along with his wife, came up with a plan to sell a piece of property they owned and to pretend to do the same thing that Barnabas had done taking all the proceeds from the sale, laying it at the apostles' feet. But in reality, they kept a portion of it back for themselves. It's quite possible that their plan was motivated by seeing the, the attention and the accolades that Barnabas got. You know, here's Barnabas in the church going, oh, look what happened. You know, everybody, everybody loves Barnabas, man. He's called the son of encouragement. He's doing, we can do that and we'll get the same kind of a claim. That's probably what kind of motivated this perhaps. But what they don't count on was the Holy Spirit revealing their deception to Peter. You don't underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the kind of a, a, an impromptu parenting tip, but I will tell you, 
that there were many times when I asked God to reveal the stuff that was going on in my kid's life through his Holy Spirit, I pleaded with him, show me what's going on in my kid's life. And I, I promise I won't give any examples today so my kids can relax. <laughs> but he did. Very often I would just have this like, you'd get this, something's not right, something's going on, and you'd go to check it out. And, and sure enough, um, you know, they didn't love that I prayed this way. But that's fair game, parents. You can do that. It's just totally fine. Verse 3, Peter says to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds from the land? And then he says something I think that's extremely helpful and interesting. He says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, he's saying you could have done whatever you wanted with your land. You didn't have to sell it. And if you decided to sell it, you didn't have to give all the proceeds. Nobody was telling you had to do this. Nobody was making you do any of this. So, so why did you do this? Why have you contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So their sin wasn't that they, that they didn't give it all. It was that they contrived this deed out of greed and out of a desire to, to gain the, the, um, the praise of men, to pull one over on the church. Now, it kind of makes me wonder when you think about like, what they're thinking here and what, how their mind's working. You know, are, are these guys Christians at all? Or are they just churchgoers? And, and I know we can't know whether or not somebody's saved, so I'm not trying to, you know, play, you know, that God in that sense. Commentators are quite split on this question, and we can't know for certain, but I tend to, to think that they may not have actually been believers. Part of the reason for that is because Luke says at the beginning that the full number of believers were doing this. They were acting this way. Well, they weren't acting that way. Then he says, Satan filled your heart. That, that seems like maybe a problem. And then, and then you just think, well, how could they have thought they could have deceived God? You know, who, who did they think they were dealing with here? So I don't know, but I tend to think they, they may not have been and, and probably weren't. And then, of course, you have the judgment aspect, which we'll get to in a minute, which is also part of it. So what happens next is alarming, to say the least. No sooner does Peter announce that Ananias is guilty that he drops dead in front of everybody. I can't imagine what that would look like in a church meeting where you say, you've lied to God, you know, poof. Wow. I mean, that, that'll get your attention in a, in a, in a meeting. That'll wake, that'll wake things up. And thank God for the young men in the church. <laughs> Sorry. It's like, young men, we appreciate you. They did all the heavy lifting that day. It, it was not good to be a young man in the church at that particular uh, moment, I guess. And then a few hours later, we see the exact same thing happen to his wife, where, where she comes in, Peter questions her, and, and the same result. And verse 11 tells us this, that great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. And that's kind of like a, you know, no kidding, it did. So these are the contrasting accounts of chapter 4 and chapter 5. The result of what we read about in chapter 4, according to verse 33, was what I told you to pay attention to, great grace. And the result of what we see in chapter 5, great fear. And it's kind of interesting to put those two things together, isn't it? Great grace and great fear. They almost don't seem to to go together, do they? But I believe they're both necessary for the church to flourish. Most have no, no trouble understanding why we need grace. And right? if you're a sinner, what's one of your favorite words in the Bible? Grace. And we get that part. But fear is much more difficult for us to grasp and to understand. Partly because for the Christian, we've made peace with God through the cross. So we don't have to fear God's wrath any longer. But we should always remain in awe of Him. But I believe the bigger reason that we struggle with the concept of fearing God 
is because we have done our best to domesticate him. We only want to see him as the loving lamb slain. And we don't want to see him as the roaring lion who will return one day to judge sin. Great grace and great fear focus on both of those things. Oswald Chambers once wrote, the Bible reveals not first the love of God, but the intense, blazing holiness of God. And yet, when it comes to the attributes that we want to exalt and pay attention to and focus on the most, it's the love of God. When there's nothing wrong with that, I love the fact that God is loving. But we tend to kind of focus on that one to the exclusion of everything else. And so when we read a passage like this, we're shocked and uncomfortable. We wish we could kind of like take it out of the New Testament when nobody's looking and kind of put it in the Old Testament. You know what I mean? That's like, that's what I, when you read that and you're like, I just kind of want to stick that over here and hope that nobody notices. But it's here. It's in the New Testament, right? Where people try to say, well, God was different back then and now he's, no, he was the same. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has not changed his mind about sin. In a book called Yawning at Tigers, which is kind of a fun name, Yawning at Tigers, Drew Dyke writes this, our job is not to domesticate God or to try to get him off the hook. Our job is to bow before his awesome and majestic presence and worship him. He goes on to describe the problem with those that those face who try to get God off the hook for troubling passages like these. And he says this, after we get through explaining him, he comes off as misunderstood or hapless. I prefer just to say, yes, God is dangerous. He's not a house cat. He's a lion. You're free to deny, deny his existence or pretend that he's harmless. Go ahead and pet him if you'd like. Just don't expect to get your arm back. <laughs> it's like, wow, that's that's pretty Drew Dyke. I'll tell you what, nobody in the church that day had any misgivings that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, as Hebrews 10.31 tells us. The Bible tells us that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And I know we have a hard time thinking that through and understanding it, but it puts God and man in their proper context. God, man. It makes man desperate for the great grace that God offers. Now, if you're like me, I read a passage like this, and I think to myself, if God smote them for this, when can I expect to be rolled up in a carpet and taken out of here? I'm just being honest, because I, when I look at this, I think, as a Christian, I've done worse than this. I think I have. And I'm like still standing right now. Thank you, Lord. That make for an awkward sermon. I, I can't help but think that way. Why am I, why am I not, why has this not happened to me? Why hasn't this happened all over the church? Sunday mornings would be pretty, pretty, you know, it's like just, you just see, and it, that's what you think when you read this. Why isn't this happening to everybody? And so, we need to learn what, what God is trying to get to our attention through this account and understand this. And the first thing that, that we need to learn and understand is that sin is deadly serious to God. And it should be deadly serious to us. Now, God won't always judge sin on the spot like he did that day, but he will judge sin. 
And, and in some ways, like I said, he uses this to purify the church and to warn others. So, so in, a, in the same way, if you can think back to when we talked about some of the healing miracles that were going on, we talked about how God doesn't heal everybody. Sometimes he'll heal one person. And the reason he does that is, is to, to get people's attention and to point forward to what things will be like one day for people. So it kind of gives you hope. It's like a preview of coming attractions. And I believe this is the same thing, but in the negative sense. God did something out of the ordinary. It's an anomaly. It's not something that happens all the time, but it's something that serves to purify the church, to get our attention, and to point to the future judgment to come, to forewarn people. And in fact, this is God's mercy, if you think of it that way, that he would wake people up to this deadly seriousness of sin. And that's what he's doing, I think, in this passage. The second thing we should learn is that we can't put anything past God. <laughs> and yet, somehow we think we can. You have to wonder what Ananias and Sapphira were thinking here. It's like, were they stupid enough to think that they could pull one over on God? And, and as I'm saying those words, I think to myself, well, Brent, are you stupid enough to think that you can? Because you sure seem to do the same kind of thing a lot. Your sin is not secret. It's not hidden from God. And maybe they actually understood that. Maybe they knew that. Maybe they just simply presumed on his mercy to overlook it. You do that ever? I mean, I'm like, again, that's, I do that. You know, again, it's like, I, you guys probably get tired of hearing us say this, but like, when I read the story, I want to be Barnabas, right? And then as I read through it, it's like, man, I'm Ananias and Sapphira again. Like, why can't I ever, but that's who I'm, who I'm seeing myself as. We presume on God's mercy. And interestingly, the name Ananias means God is merciful. That's the name he grew up with. Think about that. A name meant a lot to them. So he was always hearing, God is merciful. God is merciful. God is merciful. God is merciful. That can be a word of life to a weary sinner, but it can also be a word of excuse to a willing sinner. And I wonder about that. I, I imagine this conversation him and his wife having. You know, Should we really do this? I mean, won't God be upset if we do this? Ah, God is merciful. Can you almost kind of see that? God's merciful. We do that, don't we? No, he's merciful. I just want to, <laughs> this is probably manipulative and wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway because I want to see you guys fight against sin. Next time sin is crouching at your door and you're about to give in by telling yourself, nah, God is merciful, trade that out with Ananias. <laughs> Say that instead. Ananias, that'll get your attention. <laughs> now, I'm not suggesting that you're going to drop dead if you do it. But but it's serious, is it not? If you've been living in a way that's counting on the fact that God is merciful, maybe it's time to stop. The late R.C. Sproul, who, who's just an amazing guy, he wrote a book. If you've never read it, I would, I would encourage you to get it. It's called The Holiness of God. And in it, he writes these words. God is indeed long-suffering, patient, and slow to anger. In fact, he is so slow to anger that when his anger does erupt, we are shocked and offended by it. We forget rather quickly that God's patience is designed to lead us to repentance, to give us time to be redeemed. Instead of taking advantage of this patience by coming humbly to him for forgiveness, we use this grace as an opportunity to become bolder in our sin. We delude ourselves into thinking that either God doesn't care about it or that he's powerless to punish it. The supreme folly is that we think we will get away with our revolt. 
that's terrifying <laughs> to, to consider. And, and I just, I seem to know a lot of people that think this way. Another thing we can learn from this account is that hypocrisy has no place among God's people. If you were to go out and poll the world as to why they don't like Christians or why they don't like Christianity, one of the number one things they'll always say is it's just a bunch of hypocrites. And the truth is that they got a leg to stand on there, unfortunately. We've done this thing in the church where we feel like we have to be a hypocrite. We feel like it's not a safe place. What you saw go on here this morning with people sharing their brokenness it doesn't happen in very many churches, unfortunately. And I'm so glad that it happens here. Not a lot of pastors will stand up here and say some of the things we say about ourselves, you know, because it's, it's you know, well, one, I'm afraid you guys are going to be like, why, why is he a pastor? You know, it's like, shouldn't he be sitting here and listening to the messages? These messages are for me, too. We don't have to be hypocrites. Christ has made a way for us out of that. You know, that's one of the greatest things about being in Christ is I don't have to pretend I don't have to be fake. That's why people don't like hypocrisy. You, you put yourself up on this pedestal and act like you've got everything together when it's, none of it's true. You know, I'm holier than you. No, you're not. I'm, I'm, you know, all of these things we do and people, they see through it. They don't like it. But in Christ, we don't have to be that way. And the reason is because when somebody asks me, where does your righteous come, righteousness come from? I, I can't, I don't point to me. I point to Jesus. He's the best thing about me. He's the only good thing about me. He's my righteousness. He's my hope. It's all Him. Apart from Him, I got nothing. And I know that. And that's honest. It's okay to say that. And it's okay for people to see that. And I hope that as a church, that's kind of the the humble posture we take. The difference between those in this building and those that that haven't become Christians is, is... Christ. It's His forgiveness. That's what changes things, not anything that that we do. God is not pleased with people who claim to be a beacon of morality, but who are unkind and unloving and arrogant. And that's one of my biggest frustrations, I have to be honest, with people that call themselves Christians, but they never actually follow Christ. (laughs) There's so many people out there that, that label themselves as a Christian. It's like a vegan wearing a leather jacket. You know what I mean? It's like... It's like something seems off here. You're not helping us out with this. If you're not going to follow the leader, why are you calling yourself a Christian? You you would do everybody a big favor by just stop calling yourself that. If you're a Christian, follow the leader. Stay in line, right? Because of Christ, we can be honest before God. Everyone in this room is a sinner. Everyone in this room needs a Savior. But only those who trust Christ are forgiven. That's the scary part of this story for me, is on the surface, if you were to look at Barnabas and you were to look at Ananias and Sapphira as churchgoers, would you see any difference? They both attended church. They both sold a piece of property. They both generously gave money to the church. But there was something very different about them. I believe their eternities were different. That different. That stark. And sometimes, you know, when we come across passages like these, they're hard. But but think of them as safety cones that, that force us 
toward the on-ramp that leads to Jesus. Think of them that way. Think of them as mercy. God wants to get our attention sometimes. And this passage, <laughs> it'll, it'll work for that, right? I love that this story is recorded for us because it reveals God's anger over sin. It reveals His holiness. It reveals His righteous judgment and justice. And all of that makes the cross so much more glorious to me. This is who God is. And yet, we see Jesus on the cross. You know what it's like when you go through a really hard winter? How that makes you appreciate summer all the more? That's what this is. We wouldn't value what God has done for us without knowing from what He's saved us. And it's not just what we've been saved from. It's who we've been saved from. This white, hot, holy God has reached His hand down to you through His Son. And you can take that hand and live. Praise God for Jesus Christ, for salvation on the cross, for all that He's done for us. Lamentations 3.22 says, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We set the table here to remember exactly that. That God is holy, that we are sinful, and that God has provided a sin bearer for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus willingly went to the cross and took your place. The bread symbolizes Jesus' body broken for you. The cup symbolizes His blood shed for you. This is a picture of what took place on the cross so that you could live. It's set for believers. If you, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, come and enjoy communion this morning. It's a reminder of all that He's done for us until the day when the roaring lion rides back into town to judge sin and to take us home. Father, thank you so much for the day that we can gather and hear from you, hear from your word, hear about your glory and your goodness and your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that this church would have both great grace and great fear. We thank you that you have You've done everything for us through Jesus Christ on the cross. And we thank you that we have this time now that we can remember it. I pray, Father, if there's anybody here today that needs to do business with you, to get things right with you, that, that today would be the day that they would do it. Today is the day of salvation. And I pray, Father, that, that you would search the hearts in this room, Father. Convict, comfort, do what needs to be done in the lives of your, of your people, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.